This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's Bigger Question, where can we find hope in a coronavirus world? Now, we can't get a live audience today, but we can ask some big questions via some remote interviewing technology. We're asking today's big question to two people. First, to Dr. Natasha Moore. Natasha is a research fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity. She is a speaker, writer and author of several books, including the 2020 Australian Christian Book of the Year, For the Love of God, and also the recently released The Pleasures of Pessimism. And she joins me now. Natasha, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks for having me. It's great that you can be here. We're also asking today's big question to Dr. Keith Souter. Keith is one of Australia's most influential global futurists and media commentators in national and foreign affairs. He's achieved three doctorates, written numerous books, and he's also a member of the prestigious Club of Rome, an organisation concerned for the future of humanity and the planet. And he joins me now, Keith. Welcome to Bigger Questions. It's great that you could join us. So, Natasha, congratulations on winning Christian Book of the Year. Were you surprised when your book won? I was so surprised. I don't like you're supposed to say that, but I actually (laughs) had completely decided beforehand, like I hadn't even considered that it might win. So, um, so it was kind of a shock and a pleasant one. A pleasant, a pleasant shock though. But also quite a shock. Very good. Now, Keith, you're a member of the Club of Rome. Now that sounds a bit like a covert Illuminati style group. So what exactly is the Club of Rome? Well, the Club of Rome was started in 1972 when it, uh, two people uh, commissioned a report on what would happen with continued high economic growth. So if you cast your mind all the way back to the 50s and 60s, we were recovering from World War II. The economy was picking up. There was, of course, a threat of nuclear war. But these two people, Aurelio Pichai, who was head of the Fiat Corporation based in Rome, and Alexander King, who was a British civil servant based in Paris with OECD. They were both concerned about what was going to happen with the environment. So they commissioned a report to be devised by this newly invented thing called the computer. And the computer did a series of projections out to the year 2050 to try to look at what would be the impact on the earth. So they basically, in 1972, when they published a report to the Club of Rome, triggered the environment debate. So the Club of Rome was right there at the basis of the campaign. Um, got nothing to do with da Vinci. Um, <laughs> we did have a meeting a couple of years ago in the Vatican because the Pope had, uh, had spoken very well on climate change. But it was simply because uh, uh, one of the founders had an office in Rome and they decided to run the organisation initially out of that office in Rome. We're now based in Switzerland. Mm. So the Club of Rome is obviously an organisation that is looking to the future uh, and you're known as a futurist, Keith. So what fascinates you then about peering into the future? Well, because that's where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. (laughs) So uh, I have a vested interest in that. I also have an interest in history because it gives you a good sense of context and an idea of where you've come from. But one of the concerns that I've got is that with the social media, et cetera, we are so fixated on immediate issues and we're i think we're just disappearing down rabbit holes we're living in our own little bubbles we're losing sight of the big picture if you're a futurist then you are encouraging people to take a long-term view so the club of rome um, operates across disciplines the problem with academics they get to know more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing we focus on long-term issues 
such as the environment or health issues. And thirdly, we are not focused so much on the future of a particular country, but the future of the globe. And so that's why I enjoy being involved with the organization because it widens my viewpoint on what's going on in the world. Mm. And that's an important part of being a futurist, expanding people's mental horizons. I think part of the, the tragedy of the coronavirus this year is that we failed to think about the unthinkable. We kept thinking it was just a, a mild attack of flu or whatever. And instead, this is going to be known as the year of coronavirus because it has transformed so many lives. And we were unwilling at the beginning of the year to think about the unthinkable. Mm. Well, that's fascinating, Keith. And you've just touched on probably the, the big issue that we're all facing. The big question that we're all facing is at the moment, which is coronavirus. And I suppose you don't have to be a particularly well-qualified futurist to recognise that the future of humanity and the future of, uh, of our world at the moment has been dominated by coronavirus. So what, what are the big challenges and threats that coronavirus brings to the future of uh, our people in Australia and around the world? Well, I think what, uh, the, what the coronavirus has shown is that it's, it's, it's not brought about the changes that so much as accelerating what was already in place. So it's accelerated the, the way in which people can now work from home, for example. I think there are some downsides from working from home, but it's, it's quite clear that a lot of people uh, like being able to work from home rather than spending two hours or so commuting in and out of the, the city. So it's clearly having a transformational effect on the way in which we go. It's revealed, particularly in the United States, the weakness of the American healthcare system and the tragedy we're seeing there. And it's also, of course, as we're seeing as we speak, the whole issue in India and again, the weaknesses of the healthcare system. So we have seen, therefore, the way that this virus has revealed what we already knew, but we weren't paying attention to. Mm. So do you see that the future then in a coronavirus world is a, is a, a bad future or a, a challenging future? What sort of scenario would you envisage at the moment? Well, my attitude is always that you try to make lemonade out of a lemon. So if you're in a bad situation, nonetheless, you try to say, okay, I can't control the outside world, but I can control how I respond to it. So I encourage people to take life in their stride. So from that point of view, I'm a stoic. In other words, don't panic. And then secondly, just say, well, we're going to have to get used to this new normal. Mm. And, and we are, I think. I think in Australia and New Zealand, we have been able to dodge a bullet, which you see in Britain, Brazil, uh, India, Italy, and the United States. They have been really severely hard hit because the leaders didn't take the issue seriously enough. Mm. Although we are in a recession and we're facing a potentially prolonged recession in Australia, surely that's going to be cause for pessimism and challenge? Absolutely. And who knows what will come out of it. If you look back at the previous global pandemic, which was the flu, that um, in the early 1920s gave rise to the roaring 20s. Right. So we may in fact end up with a, a, quite an economic boom on our hands once things start to settle down with the coronavirus. Mm. Now, Natasha, we'll bring you into the conversation here. You've written a book on the pleasures of pessimism. So you must be loving the pessimism of this current season, the coronavirus season. <laughs> um, well, to be fair, I suppose the title of the book is a little bit of a sleight of hand, sleight of <laughs> words there. I, do, I think that we do enjoy our pessimism. I think that there are some potential upsides to how pessimistic we are as a culture, but mostly I actually think that how pleasurable we find our pessimism is a problem. So do you think that people are finding pleasure then in the pessimism of the current season in the coronavirus? 
I think that the contemplation of crisis is far more enjoyable than actually living through one. So I think there's been a kind of a pessimistic or even an apocalyptic streak to our culture for a long time. We enjoy, you know, apocalypse and post-apocalyptic movies and novels. The way that we write our headlines and run our news cycles can be very apocalyptic, mm-hmm. very dramatic. You have to kind of grab people's attention. But the thing about actual apocalypses, I'm going to use the word loosely. I mean, the original meaning of the word is actually to do with not so much disaster, but uncovering, unveiling. So, yep. you know, you know, this, the, the final book of the Bible is called Revelation, or it's often been called the Apocalypse of St. John. Um, mm. And it's sort of about the end of the world, but mostly it's about kind of uncovering. It's about going, actually, what you see when you look around the world is not what you get. Uh, there's more going on behind the scenes. And the thing that crisis does, which including the sort of mini apocalypse or the crisis of this year, is that it uncovers things. It, it exposes fault lines. It shows us, you know, as Keith was saying, like it, it exacerbates inequalities. It shows what problems we have, things that we've maybe been able to paper over or ignore, mm. and it, it forces a reckoning. So I think that can be, you know, uncomfortable. Mm. I wouldn't call it pleasurable, the actual thing, rather than the exciting idea in the future, but it can also be productive, Yeah, I hope. So is it too much to say that we're facing a, a coronavirus apocalypse or, or does that trivialise the issue too much, do you think? I think the overuse of the apocalyptic uh, can be unhelpful because it does kind of saturate us and put everything on a level. You know, if we think everything is the end of the world as we know it, then you stop actually paying urgent attention to the things that are most urgent and most in need of our collective efforts to tackle it. Coronavirus is kind of a crisis that we couldn't ignore. It was so, I mean, you know, I'm sure we, we did ignore it early on to the extent that we could, but unlike, for example, climate change, which it's been possible to kind of equivocate on for so long, we've seen that we can respond dramatically in a crisis when we have to, and therefore that should be possible in other situations as well. But if we treat everything as though everything is the apocalypse, then that just flattens it all out and kind of, I think, makes us apathetic. So, Natasha, you mentioned the apocalypse. The, the, the word is an uncovering. So what things particularly do you think it's uncovered about our culture? Coronavirus? Yes. Um, so I think in the early days and weeks of lockdown around the world, there was a real sense of solidarity and interdependence, a renewed sense of, oh, we really are all in this together. You know, not since probably World War II has there been something that's happened where mm. so many people around the world are experiencing something like the same thing at the same time and that it matters what each of us does for all the others. Um, So that sense of actually we're all connected, what we do matters, that sense of, okay, human resilience, humour, generosity. Uh, I think that was a kind of really beautiful thing. So um, uh, uncovering that eternal truth that we are actually one species Mm and that we are interconnected and you can't get away from that as much as we'd like to believe that we're autonomous individuals. Mm. As it progressed, I think the thing that it, you know, almost sort of opposite to that has revealed more is how much we're not in it together, how uh, different people's experiences have been, how disproportionately it affects the already vulnerable 
both, you know, within uh, developed countries and also in lower income countries uh, as compared with richer countries. And, you know, how we respond to that is a live question. Um, you think about the end COVID for all campaign that's been mm. going on recently uh, here that, you know, uh, actually we need to remember what was revealed early on that COVID doesn't end for anyone until it ends for everyone. And that, you know, those, those things that it's exposed, those fault lines of kind of belief uh, and of resources are actually so important and we can't ignore those because mm. of this crisis. Mm. We've touched on a number of different issues there and I suppose connected to that is the idea of hope as well and the future and how long we're going to see this pandemic lasting. So, for example, when in Melbourne, when the second lockdown began uh, with rising coronavirus cases, Melbourne author Jill Stark, she tweeted, anyone else feeling absolutely flattened by today? Are there reasons to be hopeful that my brain can't see right now? So amidst the rising cases uh, of coronavirus in Melbourne, the second lockdown, she felt there was a loss of hope in the face of a pandemic. Is that significant, do you think, Natasha? I think it's certainly understandable. Um, the feeling of kind of novelty and solidarity and, um, okay, we can rise to this challenge is so much stronger the first time around than the second. Everyone's been saying that the second time is just so much more of a slog and it's mm. really understandable to feel flattened and to feel um, just so fatigued by that. Um, I think there's a distinction to be made there between, you know, those ups and downs of feeling flat and just over it and, you know, really uh, fragile and so on, um, being gentle with ourselves uh, in that. But those kind of individual ups and downs, I think, don't change the long-term reality that, uh, yeah, of course, of course there's hope. There's always hope. <laughs> I <laughs> well, she believe could, that. And, you know, that's true in Melbourne as well. Yes. Well, the challenge that she said she couldn't see reasons to be hopeful, though. So is, it, is there a times at which things are so bad that actually any sense of hope is just lost, Keith? My view would be that, look, you're, when you look at what life is like in Melbourne at the moment with the shutdown and compare it with what's going on in Beirut at the moment, right, this is just self-indulgence that people are saying, I'm now confined to my home. There are a lot of people in the world who don't have a home in which to be confined. So I get really annoyed when I see people who are just falling in on themselves. This is what I've expressed concern about with social media, that is putting people into rabbit holes and they're just talking with each other and they're losing sense of the big picture. Mm. First of all, you're living in Melbourne, one of the most livable cities in the world. Okay, it's in a bit of a lockdown, but it's still a very safe, clean city, the economy will revive eventually. Second, you've also got to be able to build up your resilience. When I was growing up in post-war London, I used to get from my parents a packet of cheese sandwiches and I'd spend the day train spotting in London, you know, going around collecting train numbers. If parents did that today, they'd be arrested for child neglect. So we're actually, as trying to be good parents, we've actually raised generations of neurotic, self-indulged children who, who feel very vulnerable. I think there are a lot of people around the world who could cope with being in lockdown in Melbourne. Hmm. So perhaps you're less sympathetic than to the loss of hope that some people may feel in Melbourne at the moment. Well, yes, I, I am, because I'm just saying, look, if you're going to be losing hope, it's best to be in Melbourne for that rather than, say, Beirut or Africa or even some of the slums in the United States. 
How do you feel about that, Natasha? <laughs> I feel like loneliness and anxiety are genuine suffering. Um, everyone's pain is real pain. And then even though like everything he's saying is true that plenty of people do have it worse but it's it's kind of that um you know when your parents are like there are children starving in Africa you should eat your dinner it <laughs> kind right. of doesn't help that <laughs> you don't like your dinner like, I think it's true that our pain is all relative but it's still pain nonetheless yeah. or it's still it's not straightforward it's not easy though to see that there are people who do have it a, a far worse you could be and locked there's down. plenty to be grateful for like that gratitude is a really helpful antidote to a lot of the things that we go through, particularly in a lucky country like ours. Yeah. And Natasha and I are obviously of different generations, so that's why we're looking at the world somewhat differently. (laughs) (laughs) There are all sorts of different hopes in this present coronavirus season, hopes around lockdown strategies, hopes for a vaccine, hopes to rebuild the economy. So, Keith, how reasonable do you think these hopes are uh, in combating the threat of COVID? Yes, I'm optimistic that we will find it. We've got a magnificent international effort underway. A number of universities are cooperating. It is a, and there is a real sense of urgency amongst politicians. So the money is there. So yes, I am optimistic that we will find either we will develop a vaccine or the virus will mutate over time as the way that has happened throughout history and will gradually weaken out. Or thirdly, we will just learn to... Um, cope with it. Now, the Christian message claims to bring hope. Indeed, the book of 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, Natasha, you work with the Centre for Public Christianity. So what is this living hope? Yeah, it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Living hope. It's kind of immediately evocative without being self-evident what that actually means. I think the phrase is partly just, it's a contrast, right, with futile hope or kind of dead hope. This is a living hope. It's real. It's living partly because the grounds of this hope, which is the person of Jesus Christ, um, Christians believe that he has broken through death that he kind of swallowed up death in himself. And because he is living, therefore those who believe in him can also live and not die. So the way that that flows out into people's lives is, um, you know, in a living way, the idea is that it is life giving, that this is a hope. It's not just kind of a like pie in the sky when you die kind of idea, but actually that uh, knowing Jesus, that being kind of on board with him means that he's the one who can give life, peace, joy, purpose Mm. now. He says, you know, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. So that's kind of the promise of Christianity is life Mm. to the full. That's a living hope. So how does that work, though, in our current environment? Because this Christian hope is not going to create a vaccine for COVID. It's not going to create the economic environment for human prosperity or, or combat even the nuclear threat or the environmental threat. So how is this Christian hope useful against these global pressures? Well, I strongly disagree, actually. Christian hope has done all kinds of things just like that throughout mm-hmm. history um, that, you know, to give you a few kind of offhand examples you go back to someone like William Wilberforce campaigning 
uh, for the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. You know, when he started out as a young MP, a potentially glittering career ahead of him and being convicted that God wanted him to throw his energies behind this apparently absolutely futile campaign. Another a famous uh, preacher from the 18th century, John Wesley, wrote the, probably the last letter of his life to Wilberforce saying to him, um, you know, if, if this is just a human thing, you going into bat for this issue, it is never going to happen. Everyone is against you. But if God is for you, who can be against you? God's raised you up for this purpose, then I'm confident it will happen. And so, you know, like whether, whether or not you believe in a God, whether you believe that he was involved in that, the fact that Wilberforce believed that God was a God of justice and justice for these African slaves, not just for his people, that actually changed the world. You know, one other brief example, there was a phrase that Martin Luther King Jr. used to uh, quote uh, it's from a 19th century abolitionist actually um, and he talked about how the moral arc of the universe is long but it bends towards justice that you know you you look around at all the mess and everything going wrong and you're like yeah it's all nothing nothing looks that just right but that because of his faith in justice and hope being part of the fabric of the universe he went actually no I think it is arcing that way I have faith in that and because of that I can persevere in non-violent campaign for justice. Mm. I believe that that will have an effect. I believe that by faith. So, you know, actually it might sound kind of abstract, but it has been anything but abstract in the way that uh, people have acted on it in history. And I suppose some of these things are documented in your book then, are they? Some of the that's way the Christian hope, yeah. So that's why yeah. you're an award-winning author perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> So, so this is connected, though, to the Christian hope, though. So you're saying it's not so abstract, it's actually very tangible in the world. Is, is that how you see it as well, Keith? Absolutely. And I think it's because we've got this sense of hope as Christians that we feel energised to go out and try to tackle the problems, be it uh, on the slave trade or, or so many other issues. If you look back over the history of the social justice movement, just within Australia, say, you'll see Christians who did have that sense of hope against all hopeless situations, they nonetheless had that sense of hope. They continued to campaign and ultimately their campaigns bore fruit. Even if we, we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. How has this Christian hope then impacted how you've been confronting the, the global challenges uh, that our world faces? Well, I can't say that I'm out there solving all the world's problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, work in progress. <laughs> but I think... Maybe in two, what seem like two opposite directions, um, my faith directs me on this. One would be in a growing sense of responsibility for the world. Um, I recently read a book about vocation by a uh, Washington DC philosopher called Stephen Garber. And he talks about how the Christian faith enjoins on those who hold to it, that you must look around you, you must know the world. And the temptation then when you see things clearly um, and how terrible and desperate they are is to either withdraw or to get cynical. And he's like, you have, you have to know the world and still love the world. That's the challenge, that we have a responsibility to care for it despite how messed up everything is. So on the one hand, feeling responsible and not shutting our eyes um, or shutting our hearts to things that are going on. But I think on the other hand, there's a kind of humility and a peace that comes from being like, actually, the world is not mine to save. 
I am not in charge. I can do very little. I am, am called to do what I can faithfully, but actually it's God's world. And the best thing I can do is to trust him to be working and to be taking my feeble efforts and making something of them. Mm. Um, so the pressure is kind of the responsibility is on us, but the pressure is not on mm. us, if that makes sense. So now, Natasha, just recalling Jill Stark's tweet, when faced with bad news about COVID and lockdowns, she tweeted, anyone else feeling absolutely flattened by today? Are there reasons to be hopeful that my brain can't see right now? What would you tweet back to her? Well, tweets are all about brevity, right? So I might just tweet back, always, or something like that. You know, it's all about less is more. Um, But what I really (laughs) want to say, which I couldn't say in the 140 or 280 characters of a tweet <laughs> would be, I mean, in actual fact, the, the thing that started me off on this path of thinking about pessimism and hope about the future um, and the apocalypticism of our culture was like just a little paragraph that I read in an essay by Marilyn Robinson, who's one of my favorite writers. And she talked about how cultural pessimism is always fashionable um, and that there are always grounds for it, which is that we're human And, you know, she goes on a bit later that it's important to remember that actually there are always grounds for optimism as well. And in fact, the same grounds because we're human, that there's something about humanity. And I think that's because we're made in the image of God and he doesn't give up on us. And, you know, he's given us this agility of soul, this dignity, uh, this ingenuity uh, that she talks about there, that actually humanity is irrepressible in a lot of ways, that even though we're, there are reasons to be pessimistic about human nature, very good reasons, there are also reasons to be optimistic. We mm. are more resilient and more needed and more capable of hope and love than we often remember. Mm. That's a long tweet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Natasha and Keith, where can we find hope in a coronavirus world? We'll start with you, Keith. Well, my hope comes from the fact that we've seen so many other previous disasters and somehow we have survived. And we need to keep today's problems with the coronavirus in perspective. Mm. We've faced worse problems in our past and yet somehow we have survived. Mm. And, and so I, I find my Christian faith draws me into the future and to be optimistic and have this knowledge that somehow the exit route may not be clear at the moment, but somehow or other, we will survive this crisis. Mm. We don't know what the future holds, but we do, do know who holds the future. Natasha? Actually, every time you see a hopeless, desperate situation, look for the people who are doing something about it. You know, and sure, mm. become one of those people. But there's always humans out there who are working to make things better. There's always good news as well as bad news. So look for the helpers. They're always there. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question. Where can we find hope in a coronavirus world? From 1 Peter 1.3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guests today, Drs. Natasha Moore and Keith Souter. Thank you. Thanks very much. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.